Welcome back. I'm assuming at this point we're live. Uh, we've got a good show today. Great show today. Fantastic show today. Bobby, how are you? It's the best show of the week. Tuesday is when Bobby's stable. He's like at home. I'm at home. Look at this <laughs> nice backdrop. Yeah, there in Chicago. And we have, we have a guest today. So coach Darren Gurney is here. He's a friend of mine from New York. Darren, how are you? Good morning, Dan and Bobby. Nice to meet you. Real uh, nice. happy to be with you guys today. Yeah, so let me give you a little bit of background on Coach Gurney. He's going to fill in the rest because he's been all over the place, both as a, as a teacher, coach, player. So were you from the Midwest? You went to Washington University, but is that where you grew up or you grew up in New York? I grew up in New Rochelle, so I'm a New Yorker through and through. I did four years out there, and then I came right back to the East Coast. Just snapped right back. <laughs> this isn't for me. Get out of here, corn. <laughs> I need people honking their horns at me and, and bagels and, and great pizza. No, you what nailed you like? it. I mean, yeah. What did you like about the Midwest? What did you not like about it? I thought the people were extremely nice. You know, I went back for a, a reunion slash baseball alumni game. And immediately, the minute I got off the airplane, it reminded me of how nice people are in the Midwest. Not that New Yorkers aren't necessarily nice but it's so fast-paced no one has time to like stop and just give you the cordial niceties in a day so in the midwest yeah. is a very different vibe in that sense that's fair so coach gurney is currently a coach at layman college in new york he's also a high school teacher at new rochelle high school um he runs a very successful baseball camp called rising stars or rising star baseball camp you guys have had a lot of big leaguers roll through that camp. Um, I'm reading through your list, and I remember, like, I know I competed against Tom Kohler in college. There's a lot of big names there. So how long have you been doing that camp? Uh, 22 years, and it's been a real thrill. Yeah, we've, we've been really successful in grooming a lot of NCAA players, and six guys have gone on to play pro ball. And right now we got a guy who's with the Dodgers. He made their 60-man pool. And a week That's ago cool. today, uh, a week ago today, he – struck out Albert Pujols and Shohei Otani and even jammed Mike Trout with a nasty running four-seamer. So, uh, yeah, we're real proud of, of our graduates. That's awesome. And then uh, Darren and I, we coached together in the Dominican Republic. Was that two years ago or three years ago now? Time's, time's moving. Yeah, that was 2018. So yeah. that was two years ago. Two years ago. This, yeah, almost this week. Yeah. So let's start there. So obviously the Dominican, that was my first experience there. Very eye-opening. Um, how would you compare the way young players are brought up? And we're going to get to economics and we have a lot of stuff we're going to cover today if you're just tuning in on YouTube or on uh, uh, Twitter. So we have a pretty wide-ranging show. Darren's an economics teacher and a really good one at that. So we're going to talk a lot about baseball and, and the way it's changed um, in that regard. But how would you compare the way Dominican players are brought up compared to United States players? Dominican players have to open up eyes at a very early age, meaning they don't have college baseball till age 21 to hopefully get drafted or signed. They have to be signed by age 16 in most cases. So imagine an American kid that has to get signed or drafted by his sophomore or junior year of high school. So, they're going to show off their arms. They're going to swing really hard. 
and they're not going to look to draw a walk. They're not going to look to just throw the ball over to first base. They're going to let it fly. And I think what we saw, Dan, is we, there was a catcher who was 15 years old on the Dominican team that had a legit 1.85 pop time. Throwing aspirin <laughs> tablets down the second base. I mean. It was just freaky. And, you know, we yeah. put the gun on him. We got the three times I got his pop time. I'm like, is that really 1.86 out of a 15-year-old? So, yeah, like yeah, in they, a game. Like in a, a game. Yeah. Yeah. So their tools are just off the charts, but that's why we have so many Dominican players in the MLB. And if you look at it per capita, meaning the population of that country and how many guys actually make it from that part of the world, it's just incredible. Yeah. Bobby, what do you think if if you had to get all of your kids in your academy where they had to be signed by a major league organization by 16, what would you do differently? Uh, nothing legal. <laughs> There's no so way. A trough full of steroid water. There's Oats. no way. We do every year. We do. Uh, we do. It's fine to put it in perspective that way, though, isn't it? Crazy to think of it that way. Well, there's, uh, I, you can project, right? Like you can look at a kid and be like, oh, maybe in three, four years, like this kid's really gonna fill out. Like we can give him a shot. But there's no 16 year olds rolling through that are like 88 miles an hour, 92 miles an hour. If they are, they're like the greatest player I've, I've ever seen at that age. Yeah, uh, they're rare. We do a tryout every year. Um, Latin American baseball, conference, I don't know, it's something. Jim Parquet runs it out of, uh, it's a Team USA, essentially. Yeah, everybody wears USA jerseys. They go to one tournament in Dominican Republic. And he does a trial with our organization every year. Uh, some kids usually make it, but he gives a speech to all the parents in the beginning. And he goes, look, he goes, according to, I don't know, whatever the, however they grade this, he like, kids that grow up in a Dominican are two, physically two years ahead of kids that grow up in the United States. For whatever reason, like they're physically two years more mature. He's like, so if you're 12 years old, you're going down there. These kids are going to look like the 14, 15 year olds here. He goes, if we're 16 years old, he's like, these kids are going to look like they're 20. And I don't know what, I don't know how that works or what the, like what the science is behind that, but it's definitely true. I mean, you see some of the videos other than maybe faking an actual birth certificate. These kids, if they're the true age are way more physically developed than I would say most of the kids I see around. Well, do you think that's just selection, Darren? What do you think? Is that just the fact that if you're not that physical and strong, you just get cut and and smell you earlier? Or what do you think? I think it's the rice and beans they start eating at age two. And you and I were fortunate to get uh, a lot of rice and beans and that amazing chicken. Best food. I love their food. I mean, I, I wish I could eat their food all the time. It's amazing. Yeah, so I do think some of that might be genetic makeup, but I don't know if you remember, Dan, it was our second game. We were playing a night game, and this guy from the Cleveland Indians came over to me. I remember vividly. I'm in the third base box, and he says, hey, I got a 16-year-old over here. He wasn't even playing in the game. He said, we're, we're looking you know, to sign him. Can you let him face your pitcher? And I said, well, I can't let him face this pitcher. I just don't feel safe because he was so developed. And that's when you took the mound and blew the kid away and crushed his dreams <laughs> with like 92 mile an hour fastball and a filthy slider. that he was. <laughs> so that was fun for me to watch you dominate. But getting back to your question, it, it was really amazing to see a 16 year old left-handed stick 
that was literally twice the size of our players, even though he was only one year older technically yeah. than our oldest kid. But is that just because you don't see the skinny, scrawny, not as strong 16-year-olds because they're at home because they can't play at that level? I mean, all those teams mm. fielded very competitive teams. And that's my point. It's not like every yeah. Dominican kid is just two years bigger. That doesn't make sense. They're still humans, right? So is it just the fact that it's just so much more competitive and they just basically weed kids out way faster, way earlier, and only the yeah, strong are still, still there? Yeah, there's a real social Darwinism to it, not to get – that's what i kind of here. feel like it is yeah yeah for sure and in general it's kind of an all or nothing vibe there meaning the kid who graduates from vanderbilt or university of texas in our country he's going to be able to get a job especially you know graduating from a school like texas or vanderbilt and the demand they don't get signed by age 16 they're going to be doing some menial labor living a very impoverished lifestyle in a likelihood. Whereas in our country, it's not that way. So I think it's exactly that pyramid of that kid we saw. He was at the top of the Dominican pyramid if the Indians were really looking to sign him. So we're not seeing those skinny, you know, little nimble guys. Yeah. And, and the story to elaborate on what Darren just mentioned. So we're playing this team and it was supposed to – so we were like a 13 to 15 U team in the DR – and we were supposed to play teams that were comparable in age and size. I think that was like the agreement. But with most of these games, we showed up and there were just like 40 guys at the field. When I say guys, like kids, whatever. And they they were like all ages and ranges. And sometimes they're just batting whoever. Like guys just get a stick and bat <laughs> off us. And our team wasn't super strong. Our pitchers were throwing like some like 70 miles per hour. And that kid actually got one <laughs> to bat against us. And he had an absolute seed into the outfield. And after that, we were like, ugh. This yeah. looks like a, a sort of dangerous mismatch. So the next time he came up, you guys kind of asked, and I like volunteered, but I hadn't thrown a baseball hard. I hadn't like thrown a max effort throw in a long time. I was like a year, a year and a half retired at that point. Um, and I got out there just to pitch against him so you could get like legit competition. And I threw like the first 17 pitches were all balls, like head high. <laughs> I had like no ability to locate it. And then when I finally got him in the zone, I just, like, punched him out and ended his career. It was sad. I was – I ended his career. It was bad. <laughs> it doesn't sound I don't know. I don't know that, but uh, my curveball was pretty filthy that day. I'll tell you what. It, it was like good for our players. It was good for our players to see someone take the mound. And I, I remember referencing on the bus ride back to the hotel, your laser focus out there, your demeanor, your posture. And I think it was a good thing for them to see early in the week. Well, and those situations are, are interesting because as an old player, you still turn it on. And, like, the way I warmed up was there was really no bullpen. It was just a, a rocky, flat, dirt side like sidelines, right? There was, like, hardly any grass. And just, like, get the ball and just, like, throw it as hard as you can. Repeat your mechanics. Try to throw your stuff and then go out there. And the mound was pretty rough with a huge hole. But the big thing that, you know, like you learn over time is that there just aren't any excuses, you know, and, and my excuse for yeah. literally, literally throwing a million pitches head high and like not finding the strike zone was that I hadn't thrown a ball in 18 months. But, um, you know, you go out there and it's still all the same. You just like, all right, this is what I have. This is the situation. This is the mound. These are the conditions you go out there and just try to compete. And I think that's what good players end up finding is just the ability to turn on and compete. I've been watching a little bit of the last dance recently. Mm. I, I'm, late hey. to the, I'm late to the I'm late to the party, but I grew up watching Michael Jordan, and so it, it's reminding me 
of a lot of stuff that I knew as a kid that I saw from him as a kid. But you get it's cool to hear him talk about how hyper competitive he was oh. and focused he was because it really was special watching him play. And I appreciate it even a little bit more now hearing from that whole team. The competitiveness is such an important thing. I mean, and it's weird to think like he was like maybe the most competitive person in the entire NBA, which is like the best athletes in the world. And he's like the most competitive. It's weird. You know what I mean? And, and, and so much more than like the next guy. Yeah. Like it's not. <laughs> that like doesn't make sense, thing. right? Like he wants to be on the bus first. That one else. <laughs> Guys, come on. It really is weird when you see outliers like that one. So I've only been to, I think, one NBA game in person. It was a 76ers Oklahoma City Thunder game maybe like 10 years ago. And I just remember seeing Kevin Durant. He was pretty young in his career, like not super well known. But I just was watching him and I didn't really care about basketball. I was like, that dude is more athletic than everyone on the field, on the court. Like he's, he sticks out amongst NBA players. Oh, yeah. and, and Michael Jordan was that back in his day. I'm not saying Kevin Durant and Michael Jordan are comparable. I think they kind of are. They're in the same, maybe same realm, maybe not. I'm not. I'm not, be, I'm not gonna be in the same gym. But there's Kevin Durant's super athletic to the point where he stuck out yeah. amongst the world's best athletes. That's my only real point there. But um, anyway, so back to the Dominican. Um, it's a crazy experience. So Bobby, you said you've got uh, so some of your guys that they go on that trip with Jim Parquet. Yeah. So they go and they're there for a week. It's essentially a international tournament. So. A team from Mexico will come, like Cuba will bring a team, Venezuela, the Netherlands, and the USA. They'll bring a team. Uh, the jerseys don't look necessarily like the real USA jerseys. They just say like a block letter USA on it. But it's you're still representing the United States. Um, and the kids seem to love it. I mean, our, the 16U team two years ago won it. We had a kid on the team. He played a ton. And he said it was, you know, unlike they, you know, mob the field when they win the game. It's so it was unbelievable. And you're probably at that age not getting the best Dominican players on the field. You're going to get the kids that got passed over that aren't in the academies already, but you're still getting good baseball. And some of the younger guys that go, the dads just say how, how big and how strong some of these arms are that they're facing, like the 12 year old. We had a 12-year kid go last year, and he was just blown away by the by the velocity, the size of the 12-year-old kids, and mm-hmm. not just from the Dominican. I mean, the other countries as well. He said the U.S. He's like we were probably the smallest team coming from the U.S. And you have teams, you know, Mexico, Venezuela. I mean, some warm weather, probably baseball-heavy countries, and they're all funneling into baseball. All the best athletes are just funneling into the sport, maybe not Mexico because of soccer, but all the other countries are baseball heavy, Cuba, Venezuela. I mean, those are baseball countries. Yeah. And I guess, and I think we talked about this in the past, but if, if there was like a handful of teams for New York or only a handful of teams for, for Illinois or Chicago, those teams would be big, you know, like if there was one regional team for New York for 14, you just like one, those kids would be, they'd be monsters, right? I mean, because they'd be, like you said, they'd be selected from all the best. It'd just be the most physical, yeah. ridiculous team, but there's so many spread out. Well, then so that, would be a true, that would be a true travel team, Dan. And by yeah. the way, you know, because I have an economics perspective on everything, one thing I think your audience should know about is the baseball academies in the Dominican are so powerful. When a kid yeah, so gets signed, 
Yeah, when a kid gets signed, they basically turn over 50% of their signing bonus to the academy, which would never date. For instance, I, I work with a kid named Edwin Peralta. He's a single-A player with the White Sox. And Edwin got $1.2 million drafted out of the um, Dominican, and he had to give 600000 to the academy. That would never happen in America. So it's kind of a sad plight for them as well. Is that how he felt about it? That it was, I mean, what, what, were, what were his thoughts about it? Did you talk to him about it? I did. His English isn't very good. So whenever we train together, there's an interpreter there. And we haven't done a lot of talking about it. But his father, who I do speak to, whose English is a lot better, is a little frustrated because, you know, that's a lot of money for them, 600000 But when they come to the States, they have to really husband that money and make sure they don't blow through it. So in terms of his training, whether it's going to a gym, a baseball facility, they really have to watch it. And I think losing half that signing bonus, because as we know, and we'll talk about this, minor leaguers don't make any money. They really, that's kind of their nest egg as a family, including yeah. his siblings and an extended family. That 600000 is really going to be used for the next bunch of decades for the whole family. Right? I mean, do you feel like that's wrong the way they do it that way? Because from it feels kind of like venture capital in a sense where yeah. they're, inve- they're investing a lot of time and resources. They're like feeding and clothing these kids for the most part, right? Driving them around like these kids have a chance because of these academies in large part. And I, I certainly don't know all the ins and outs of them, but most of those kids are not going to get a signing bonus at all. And these academies have spent a lot of resources and their own money and time on all of them, hoping that they get a couple kids like him who can then basically pay everyone's bills. Right. I mean, is that, is that wrong for them to take such a big cut when that's sort of the system? Yeah, I think the metaphor of a venture capitalist firm is a great one. Hey, we'll throw all these kids against the wall, and hopefully out of the 300, yeah. we're going to train. One of them hits IPO. Yeah, like we're good. Yeah, one of, one of them's Vlad yeah. Guerrero or Pedro Martinez. Absolutely. So you bring up a good point, and whether it's a 50-50 split or a 75-25 split, I, I don't know what the fair amount is. Yeah. But $1.2 million, or in this case, 600000 goes a long way in the Dominican. Mm-hmm. It goes a real long way. So I don't know if 50-50 is exactly fair. I mean, $600,000 could fund an academy down there for probably 40 years. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. I don't know the right figure. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a, I don't know that much about it. I know there's probably all sorts of positives and negatives, pros and cons. And yeah, I don't know. Bobby, you should run your academy that way. Let kids come for free. <laughs> Take a if cut. I had, if I had the money, there would be litigation. <laughs> there would definitely be litigation. If I had the money, I would definitely, I would do a lot more for free. If it, if money was no object, I would teach probably a lot more baseball to a, a broader group of kids, like a more diverse group of yeah. kids in all parts of the city. I mean, Chicago's loaded with baseball. There's just not, like, I wish I had money like that, like just throw away money. It's hard, and then. To the, kind of how you said you're like hoping one of these kids hits down in Dominican. Well, the like cost of living down there is so inexpensive. Like you could probably run that academy for pennies on the dollar. Whereas exactly. Like, like I'm like even my facility in in Chicago, it's like scraping to make ends meet through you know some of these baseball facilities because the square footage is so large and you 
you know, you got to have a lot of indoor space with the weather. I mean, I'm yeah. sure it's, if you did something like that and maybe in like the South where you could, you know, you could do a lot more outside, you could save a little bit of money. We yeah. lost Darren. Darren, you still with us or just maybe mute is, or you can't mute a video, uh, but there you I'm are. here. Okay. I'm here. Uh, yeah, it's a, you, <laughs> I don't, it's probably the wrong way to, uh, so have you guys seen the new Blade Runner? No, you love Blade Runner. Have you, it, you? Neither of you guys have seen it. Darren, you haven't seen the new no. Blade Runner? Well, he lands, so he's looking for his like birth parent, I think. Is that what it was? That's the plot line. So he lands on this, he lands on this planet where it's like a trash planet. And he finds this guy who runs like an orphanage. And in this orphanage, there's like a massive room of kids. And they're just picking apart electronics for like the precious metals inside of them. Bobby, you could do that where they do like five, five hours picking apart old iPhones for the gold. And then that money funds the rest of their day. It'd be like the IMG Academy, but you know, you know, terrible child labor. Have you thought of this? It's not off the table. <laughs> if that's what you're saying. I, I don't know why that came to mind, but it'd be funny if they're not funny. That's not a good scenario. Obviously I'm joking. It would be interesting if there was some way you could teach kids like vocational skills that actually brought the academy money that could then be used for their own benefit. I don't know what that looks like, what that is, but like what if they were doing like day trading and you're teaching about financial times, <laughs> <laughs> they're just day trading in the morning. Hey guys, you did great. You brought in 1.2 mil this morning. Really, really hitting it hard. Keep it up. All right, let's go to the baseball field for four, five hours. Like everybody wins. You have all the money you need to get them all to the big leagues, you know? Bobby's so Day Trading Academy. Him, we got to teach him some life skills. Team NASDAQ. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you guys, you guys, this stock market takes one more day. You guys are done playing baseball. <laughs> exactly. How could you bet on JP Morgan Chase? You know, you know their CEO is unstable. Come on. Have you learned nothing at this school? <laughs> <laughs> so, Darren, let's, let's shift into economics a little bit. So, this is your background. Um, Give us the state of baseball, and then we'll kind of backtrack from there. Is baseball – what do you got? What's up with baseball? So I would say 1995 is when I really became entrenched in coaching baseball. So I have the business of baseball, of economics from 95, which we know has changed so much. When you look at – well, let's start with the 1970s and the birth of the free agent, and then you have the strong players union, which is – a stronger union than any other sport. And you've got these players getting gigantic salaries that are guaranteed, unlike the NFL. Right? Yeah, that's interesting. Unless you're the Peyton Manning or the Tom Brady, every salary in MLB is guaranteed. And now you've got the merchandising and the TV revenue from those contracts. And that has filtered into youth baseball. And when you look at showcases and training facilities like Bobby's, and you've got um, the summer travel circuit and you've got the technology and the equipment these kids have. So there's, there's the business of baseball. And then the way I look at it, and I'm a trained history economist kind of guy. I go back to Adam Smith in the 1770s writing the wealth of nations. And those are like the classic traditional models of economics, which compare and have a lot of the tenets of baseball where you're laissez-faire, no government interference, similar in baseball, 
there was no MLB interference, which is obviously very different now where the MLB is doing things like the designated hitter being mandated or instant replay being mandated, or you have 20 seconds to release a pitch, which is probably going to be mandated, or we're going to do extra innings where we start a runner on second base, uh, where we have a limited amount of conferences, obviously to speed up the game because it comes back to economics and, and profits with all of those initiatives. Uh, and then we have other economists that come along like John Maynard Keynes, who says, no, the government should interfere to rescue things. And certainly we've had a lot of that in the MLB. And then there's economists like Karl Marx, who in 1848 wrote this communist manifesto where he said, we have the haves versus the have nots. And if we look at professional baseball, I think you would agree there's a lot of haves, whether it be the Bryce Harpers or the Garrett Coles of the world versus, you know, as a minor leaguer, the average salary, I think, is something like eight to $12,000, or even the MLB minimum right now is 563000 which sounds like a lot of money, but unless you got a good signing bonus and you, and you have an injury, you're out of the game, there's definitely a real discrepancy between those elite players making millions and millions. I believe the average salary in the MLB is something like $4.5 but there's all those minor leaguers and those you know, bottom tier guys that never see a million dollars in their life from playing the game. And yeah, then, you that, know, last that average, how, how deceptive do you think that average is? It's very deceptive because you look at the elite three or four guys on each team and they might have a contract that's worth, you know, 80 to $250 million over the, the course of the contract. And then you've got the triple A guy that's kind of bouncing back and forth between the MLB and triple A. And I think I saw the average AAA salary for that veteran, that journeyman, is something like eighty-three thousand dollars. Yeah, they make once they make it to the forty man, or one of the twenty man, twenty-five man roster at all, and when they go back down, their salary changes for forever. Yeah, because it's like a minimum of like eighty-three, and then it scales up from there. You could be making a pretty pretty significant amount of money. You go from making two grand a month to fifteen grand a month or more. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the other economist that really, I think, parallels economics and baseball well or puts them side by side is Joseph Schumpeter, who came up with this concept of creative destruction. And the best way to maybe make that example come to life is remember when Blockbuster Video was the company and then Netflix came along and just drove them out of business. And I think if we look at Major League Baseball, you see a lot of creative destruction you know the concept of bunting the concept of choke up with two strikes and put the ball in play the concept of pitchers throwing down in the zone a lot of that has really been overturned recently with the notion of strikeouts right I don't mind striking out with an 0-2 count 1-2 count I'm still gonna swing hard I mean I was watching Cody Bellinger swing the other night he was not getting cheated 0-2 and so there are changes and we talked a little bit about the survival of the fittest down in Dominican. I think that even exists in America where if you're going to stay in the league, you got to drive in runs. you got to have a strong OPS. So striking out is not a big deal. Pitchers, they gotta, they got to strike guys out. they got to hit 95 on the gun, et cetera. So it's a little bit of this all-or-nothing mentality. And I think Schumpeter in economics – 
came up with this concept that does have through lines to today's modern baseball. Yeah, it's it's funny that you talk – because I was just reading something about how five years after retirement, like 60% of NBA players have either severe financial distress or broke, and that's not uncommon with all these major sports apparently just because guys spend most of their salary during the season, and then when the season's over or the offseason hits, they're still spending the same amount of cash. The cash burn rate's the same. And uh, they don't have any income in the off season. And then lots of guys right. will only earn a couple hundred thousand dollars. Like I know Bobby and I had a bunch of teammates like that who played a couple of years in the big leagues and crossed paths with us in the Atlantic League. Mm-hmm. You know, in a couple of years in the big leagues, you make you know your four hundred fifty thousand salary at the time, and then you know maybe you're up for the whole season, maybe you're not. So maybe you get two hundred thousand for that year, and then taxes, and then you know you pay your fees and you live in a nice place and all this other stuff. And then suddenly like you don't have that much money, that much money left. And then three years later you're bounced out and it's like, okay, I have like a hundred grand maybe left and all right, real world. Like, here we go. So well, nobody really, t- I mean, I don't know. I have never been in the big leagues, but the co- like the cost of being in the big leagues is significant as a player. Like you're everything you pay for everything and you pay through the nose for everything. I mean, there's guys that some of the friends I have that have made it to the big leagues. It's not a, like an inexpensive lifestyle. It's not like a minor league lifestyle where you go to Chipotle before the game. And like, that's like a treat. Like that's like, that's similar. You're spending 10 bucks and that's your, that's your money. Like the, the dues are uh, unwritten 50 bucks a day. You're tipping everybody. You can never allowed to carry your bags, whether you get to the hotel, to the field, everybody's getting tipped. You go out with the guys like it's not <laughs> it's not your local tavern. There's definitely it's, keeping up with the Joneses too. I'm sure. Yeah. Like and there's like it's an expensive lifestyle. You're living in a major city. You're probably on a short term lease that's going to be, and you know you're not sharing a, a one bedroom apartment with four guys. Like the lifestyle is expensive, and then obviously you make it, so you're probably going to treat yourself a little bit. I would think. Um, so the money's Mr. just Lula going. pants. Yeah. yeah, you get a you get a second, but you get a, you know everywhere you go, you travel in suits. Like you're gonna you're gonna have to buy suits if you don't have it. Clothes are different, so it's an expensive lifestyle. I mean, you got to, especially for someone who's on the minimum. I mean, you're probably you're probably spending a lot more money than you've ever been used to spending just to keep up with being at the level you're at. Yeah, yeah and the other piece the other piece to that, guys, is these players acquire assets whether it be cars, homes, jewelry. And then when they do file Chapter 11 bankruptcy, they have to liquidate those assets and they get them for pennies on the dollar. So I got to dump my car or my mansion because I'm broke. I'm not going to get even 50 cents on the dollar for those items. Yeah. So that, that adds to their you know, personal bankruptcy. Yeah, it's rough. You're, I mean... You got you, you get that Lambo for 160 G's. <laughs> you're only gonna sell for you know the bank's only gonna get 48 for it at the auction. Dang. Exactly, that's rough. Well, let's talk about the free agency stuff because we were talking off camera, and I don't remember the specifics. But uh, for those of out out there, those of you out there who are listening, the book Ball Four by Jim Bouton, and Jim Bouton passed away I think two years ago. But that's one of my favorite books. It's a a really amazing read. Uh, there's still so much of what he said. He's just talking. So if you don't know about ball four, probably if you're 40 years old or older, you do, but 
ball four was Jim Bowden, who was a major leaguer. He was chronicling his season as a Seattle pilot, which was a um, – they actually became the Milwaukee Brewers, not the Seattle Mariners. But he was chronicling his season as a knuckleballer, converting into a knuckleballer after he had like a pretty outstanding first couple of years at New York Yankee. Like he won a World Series game and all this other stuff. And then he hurt his arm, and then he was trying to reinvent himself for the pilots. And he basically was offered to write this like sort of tell-all book. So he was keeping a little journal throughout the entire season. And the, the book is like written like that, these hilarious anecdotes. But he was also, he just like gave no Fs. And when they were trying to basically force him to sign um, salary, like sign his next contract, he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not signing that. And then they're like, don't tell. Okay, all right, we'll give you more money. Jim, but don't tell anyone. He's like, screw that. I'm telling everyone how much you gave me. Like he was very disruptive to the system. And again, I, I haven't, I listened to it, I think a year ago. So I don't remember the exact specifics, but he was, he was very involved with advocating for players for free agency for like getting that train moving. Um, again, I wish I'd, I did a little more research before we started chatting about this, but take us through free agency and the evolution of that. Cause it is kind of, it's kind of crazy these days. Like players get paid, paid so much. But, I mean, take us through it, Darren. Yeah, so early 1970s is really where we see the advent of the free agent. And some of the early contracts were Catfish Hunter, Reggie Jackson. And those players, and you look back to those Oakland A's teams of the early 70s that were the best teams in baseball, and they lost a lot of their players to free agency. Reggie Jackson being the marquee name. And that's where teams started making the decision, hey, if we can sign a Reggie Jackson type of player, not only does he give us a chance to win, which Reggie helped the Yankees win a, a championship in 70, 1977, 1978, but we're going to sell his jersey. He's going to put people in the stands. We're going to get a great TV contract. So it's not just winning and losing. And you see that across all sports now. You know, in our area, the New York Jets signed an aging Brett Favre to a one-year deal. It was a very lucrative contract for Favre. But did the Jets really think he was going to bring them an NFL Super Bowl title? No, I don't think so. But they sold a lot of number four jerseys. And that right there was going to make it profitable. And I see it with my Knicks teams that are always losing in New York. Why are they signing all of these aging veterans that are not going to lead to even a playoff run. Well, they're going to make this, and the garden sells out, guys. They, they sell out every single year, even though the team has a below 500 record almost every year in the last decade. So the free agent thing for teams is sometimes about profitability more so than winning and losing. And if you look at the MLB premier free agent signings, most of them don't lead to winning, right? These guys get hurt. Their performance starts to lag as they get into their yeah. mid and later 30s. There's been very few of those contracts, especially if we look at pitchers, that worked out. I mean, yeah, the A-Rod 10-year, $250 million contract, I think you could argue that was worthwhile for the organization. But so few of them actually pan out that way. So, I mean, look at Bryce Harper. I mean, it's early in that contract, but towards the end of that contract, do you think that's going to be a good return on investment for the Phillies? No I, shot. Highly doubtful. You know, yeah. so I think I think it's interesting to look at. And you look at the teams that win the World Series, guys, 
it's not the teams that have a lot of those big free agent signings. It's the teams that are young and lean. They put the ball in play. They run well. They play great defense. They don't swing and miss much. The free agent signings, especially for offensive players, there are a lot of swing and miss players, those big free agent signings. So I don't think it equates to world championships, but it does equate to nice revenues for the organization. Well, let me ask both of you a question, uh, and this is going to tie in. I have a couple of things that tie into the last dance. Well, number one, one of the things that made me laugh out loud, like I literally laughed out loud, was uh, they're talking about his shoe, Jordan's shoe contract when his agent was saying, yeah, our hope after they inked Jordan was that they would sell $3 million worth of shoes within four years. And then he says, we sold $126 million in the first year. Like I just like, laughed out loud, out loud, which is just insane. But um, so there's two main people that stick, that stick out. And this is my question to both of you. So Salvador Perez signed a pretty low yearly contract. I don't remember what it was. It's something like six years and like $15 million, right? A couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Scotty Pippen fell prey to sort of the same thing. And he talked about it. He said that he, you know, he signed like seven years, 18 million or something. And he became very bitter about it at the end yeah. because he became one of the premier players in the NBA and realized that his market value was maybe, you know, 10 million a year at that point. Are, are teams under any obligation to renegotiate such a contract when player like Salvador Perez signed that. I've, I remember reading about it. Like he's like, look, I can't guarantee that I'll be healthy. This gives my family economic security. And Pippen said the exact same thing, but yet still soured on it. So do, mm. do teams, do teams have any obligation to renegotiate stuff like that? I'll throw it to you, Bobby first. And then we'll go to Darren since he's smarter. Let's uh, <laughs> not get true. carried away. <laughs> uh, I would say absolutely not. They have no obligation to renegotiate it. Um, I think it just goes back to regular. Like you're worth what someone's willing to pay you. If it's it's Scotty Pippen's situation sucks because yeah, eighteen million dollars when he signed the contract was pretty good. But even in the even in that example you're talking about, Jerry Krause told him not to take it. He's like, look, if you want more money, like you can't take this deal. And he said, no, I'm going to take it. That's true. That's true. You see, you see what happens with the White Sox a lot. I feel like the White Sox are the best team as far as locking up their really young players, probably like a year early. So they overpay a year early and they underpay the next seven years. They did it with mm. Chris Sale. They do it with Jose Quintana, Louis Robert on the team now, um, Yohan Moncada. Like these guys are making maybe $50 million contracts over the course of six, seven, eight years. That's nothing in baseball. Like those are really, especially if they pan out, like you, you blow $50 million on a two year contract for a guy that might never play for you. If he blows out his arm or something like that. Um, in which case he's not giving that money back anyways. So I don't think that the, I don't think that the organization from a business standpoint is under any obligation. They might in good faith extend you and give you, you know, tack on a couple of years and some, some heavy salary. But I don't think they're under obligation. Because there's plenty of scenarios where you can go back and this guy signed for $130 million and he got one decent year out of him. Like Albert Pujols' contract right now is absolutely absurd. Like he, he, he'd arguably be released and yes. out of baseball if he wasn't making $30 million a year. Ryan Howard, Chris Davis. I mean, there's a, there's a right. but long, exactly. laundry so there's, list of them. There's yeah. so many examples of guys that have uh, totally underperformed and they're not – I mean, I wouldn't give the money back. It would be crazy to give the money back. 
So I don't think you're under any obligation. It's it's nobody forced you to sign any contract. I wouldn't. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. Darren, what are your thoughts on this? So in the New York area, there's a classic signing of a guy named Bobby Bonilla, who you guys remember. <laughs> and we that. just, we just, they're still paying him a million dollars a year. All these years later, um, they deferred the money down the road mm-hmm. so they could use it in the present. So like you said, there's countless examples. Bobby's response was a traditional Adam Smith capitalist answer. Hey, supply and demand what the market will bear. It's interesting, Salvador Perez and Scottie Pippen, I'm not going to say they're blue-collar players, but they are guys who aren't as flashy, but they are essential for winning, right? Salvador Perez's defense is probably the best defensive catcher when they sign that contract, and you and I know it leads to winning baseball and help them win a championship in 2015 with the Royals. Scottie Pippen wasn't the big billing guy because of Michael Jordan and other guys were more flashy. But when you look at Pippen's defense and his length as a player and his unselfishness, he created so many of those winning championship teams. So back to the contract, no, that's the only, the only exception to them renegotiating would be if the public outcry was so intense that the organization felt like, wow, we better – kind of renegotiate this because the fans and the media are really coming down on us and we saw that recently in New York with Jacob deGrom where the Mets I would say begrudgingly gave him a new contract with additional money because he's the best pitcher in baseball arguably and he wasn't making the deserved money and we saw with Matt Harvey by the way guys Matt Harvey never made big money even though he was the most dominant pitcher the Dark Knight, a Friday night game at City Field with Matt Harvey pitching was the biggest spectacle in all baseball. Yeah. And yeah. if you look at his career earnings, and he's basically out of baseball. I think the Royals yeah. just signed him to a minor league contract. If you look at his career earnings, Matt Harvey never made big money, yet his stuff played as good as any pitcher in the game for probably three years. Which I like so that story. I like, I like the Matt Harvey being sad story because I think he was a huge jerk. I mean, he was just like very – and he's like very smelling his own farts. So I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that. Like Matt Harvey really loved Matt Harvey. It was clear. So Fact. yeah, I'm, I'm on board with him. You know, life came and at I, him kind of hard. And I think that's why the public outcry for him wasn't what it was for Jacob deGrom. You know, Jacob deGrom puts his head down. Seems, seems like a great his, dude, professional, yeah, just goes yep. out there and pitches and yep. Yeah, where Harvey agree. was showing up yeah. late to practices. Mm-hmm. And he wanted he everyone to know city. that he was a superhero. Yeah. He very yeah, he much slipped dating. into that persona. He was dating supermodels and out partying. And, and there's not going to be as much empathy for a guy like that who doesn't mm-hmm. get that renegotiated deal. So I think it's a great question. And it ties in with traditional economic theory with supply and demand and let the market pay what it will bear, as, as Bobby mentioned. Well, does a business have an obligation to pay people what they're worth or what they will accept? Most would say what they will accept. However, as I mentioned, when the public outcry and you start getting negative PR on it, Mm -hmm. and you do have the notion of conspicuous consumption, which is an interesting economics concept, where in this case, people are paid because they are chic 
or they are fashionable. So giving that contract to Pujols, who was already going to be a Hall of Famer, made sense to the Angels. They're going to be able to put his number up for the history of the franchise on their back wall and retire his jersey because he's someone that carries a lot of cachet. Um, So they overpaid in a sense to be able to have that player and I think you know, Dustin Pedroia was a similar was a similar example. I heard, I think his his name's Tom Tippett. So he used to work for the Red Sox as like a front office, and he would basically do these like these models to try to determine what a player was worth. He was one of the front office guys key on like contract negotiations. He gave a really interesting talk at Saber Seminar, I think two years ago, and he was talking about watching players' trends. Like, all right, here's the five years before free agency. And then he like blacks it out. He says, all right, so what did this player do after free agency? How well could we predict based on what came before, what will come after? And it's very, very difficult. As you know, like humans in general aren't good at predicting the future from past events. Um, but he used Dustin Pedroia as an example. And he's like, look, yeah, we could maybe say like we should pay less for Dustin Pedroia or we should do this. But he said there's other human factors such as what does he, what does this say to younger players when we sort of like, stiff him because maybe we think he's going to decline. He's been such a leader for our team in lots of other ways. You know, does Dustin Pedroia bring value as a human, like helping other players along, mm-hmm. even, even if he's not as productive in the dugout? Does he, that leadership role, like that David Ross role, does that provide an intangible value beyond just the X's and O's on the field, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he eventually said like, so in his example, we paid what we thought Dustin Pedroia was worth in the sense that we probably overpaid compared to maybe other teams because we saw these other things that he did for us as an organization, which I thought was interesting. So. Yeah, it also begs the question about psychology. Do players, when they ink that 10-year deal or seven-year deal, do they lose that motivation? And that's why a lot of teams have gone to the one-year model. Josh Donaldson, I believe, was signed to a one-year deal. Nelson Cruz has been signed to a bunch of one-year deals. And in both of their cases, they actually produced really effectively. Whereas if you had given Nelson Cruz an eight-year contract before all those one-year deals with those various teams, would he have gotten complacent? And, you know, I'm looking in New York at Yoannis Cespedes. The guy has amazing seasons typically in his contract year. But for the two or three years leading up to that contract year, his production and his injury rate is not where you want it to be as an organization. Right. Yeah, what do you think about that, Bobby? I mean, the one-year model is tough, right? Because if someone like Nelson Cruz, like somebody has the, you know, the money to spend, we'll give him two years at sixty million instead of one year at thirty million, and then you lose him for a guy that maybe wanted to stay with you. Like, who's going to turn down guaranteed money in, in that aspect? And it's part of the Pujols signing with the Angels, right? Like, he he was Mister Cardinal. I mean, Albert Pujols was the face of the Cardinals, the longevity winning. I mean, they were really, really good. And then he just jumped ship to the Angels because they threw buckets of money at him that the Cardinals just said, this isn't going to be worth our investment. So I I don't dislike the one-year model personally. I don't know if guys ever recoup the amount of money they should, they could have made in a long-term contract. Like Nelson Cruz probably should have signed a contract that's every bit as comparable as Chris Davis or some of these other guys. So I don't know if he's ever going to get that money, 
but he's definitely outperformed Chris Davis year to year and well, over the yeah. it hasn't. I mean, right. you know, I think give well, any I mean, of us a we bat, we'll outperform. Yeah, right. That's that's not exactly true, but but it's man. I the one year model makes sense for the organizations, and if players are handcuffed, I mean the players they're only going to make that money in Major League Baseball. It's not like Adam Jones just went to Japan, the twilight of his career. Obviously, like he's had a productive big league career, he's made his money. But I don't think Japan is a is a realistic alternative financially for any of these guys. So you're kind of stuck at what the big league teams are going to pay you. And if they do pay, they decide to pay you a long term deal. Like you're lucky, you're a lucky player. You're Bryce Harper. But if you're Nelson Cruz, where they pigeonhole you and they're like, look, you're a one year guy. Like at any point, you're going to break down. You don't play a position. You're kind of screwed. So that it's there's it's tough. They, tough it's a monopoly. Too. Yeah, MLB is a monopoly essentially. They don't have competition. You can't go to the independent leagues and make anywhere near the amount of money and get more years or they don't have an alternative. So Darren, where do you fall on the Bobby Bonilla deal? Who's, is that a good deal for Bobby or a good deal for the Mets who came out on top? Well, Bobby came on top just because his production didn't end up equaling the amount of his contract, but it made sense at the time for the Mets to defer the money so that they could sign other guys at the time. So they were in a sense, short-sighted hey we want to free up the money now so we can have it for our operating expenses now it ended up being a windfall for bobby bonilla although with inflation yeah i was gonna bring that up yeah you beat yeah, me to a million, it hmm. i don't yeah. know that much about economics but you beat me to the one thing i knew he's making yeah. less money every year yeah yeah I'm, however we haven't had horrible inflation in our country you know it's been pretty much two percent or less on average so thanks to our federal reserve and other factors, a million bucks 20 years ago isn't what it was, what it is now, but it, it hasn't been eroded that badly by inflation, to be fair. And, you know, back to the short-term, long-term paradigm of contracts, if I'm a Major League Baseball franchise, I would like to overpay for two or three years rather than giving the guy the seven to 10-year deal. So I'll, I'll pay a, a guy 20 million bucks a year for three years readily rather than give him a 10-year deal for 15 a year just because of body breakdowns and what I believe is motivation levels for a lot of guys decrease once they get that crazy money. Yeah, it's, it really is a weird thing. You'd hope that like – just as an athlete, you wouldn't stop competing as hard because you've got security, but you just have to know that there's just going to be this level of, all right, well, I've got a wife and two kids now, so I'm going to take it a little easier in the off season. Like your, your family dynamic changes over time. Your body starts to break down over time. Yeah. Maybe you're like, you know what? I'll take it a little easier this off season. Like I don't have to make the team. I remember the first year I didn't have the only year I didn't have to make a team. It just fundamentally felt different. In a way that I didn't like, honestly, I like didn't like it. I liked feeling the intense fear and anxiety yeah, yeah. of spring training and having to make the team. It was an exciting yet terrifying and unpleasant kind of thing. But the only year that I came back that I essentially knew I had a spot, it was it was strange. It was like there was something com I didn't have to compete. And maybe that like when that continues to add up every year, like you never have to compete for a spot and it just starts to erode some of that, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's like, it's like when you're sprinting and no one's chasing you, you just can't possibly run as fast when someone's chasing you. 
You know, it doesn't matter how well you motivate yourself. I yeah, just don't think you no possibly doubt. can. Yeah, and I love that perspective, Dan, the, the player perspective, because I often look at the business angle, and I'm looking at the New York Yankees, the premier organization, certainly in my state of New York, obviously, and they've won one championship in the last 19 years. Yet, time and time again, they sign that big guy, Jacoby Ellsbury. Now, that contract Oof, that is going to go down in history as a nightmare. And I think J Jacoby Ellsbury is a hard worker. He put up that incredible year with the Red Sox before the Yankees signed him. Whether his body broke down or there were other factors. You know what I heard about him, though? You want to hear a little yeah. anecdote? Uh, someone said a while – I don't know. The timeline of this is irrelevant. But they basically said, hey, someone was talking to Jacoby Ellsbury. They said, hey, with your speed, if you learn to get better jumps – you could steal 50, 60 bases a year. Let's work on this together. And he's like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Right. And like, you apparently wonder, that was the kind of guy he was. He was just like, nah, I'm good. Right. And you wonder if that's a cue to why he's no longer playing and that contract's been a disaster for the Yankees. But the Yankees don't learn. You know, they just ink Garrett Cole. Is that really going to equal a championship? And year in and year out, Yankee fans around me are like, oh, they got the lineup this time. This is going to be our year. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Power good New York hitters. accent. I like that one. That was good. <laughs> Power hitters <laughs> that come postseason strike out against frontline pitchers, it doesn't work. John Carlos Stanton's going to strike out a lot in the postseason. And that's not going to equate to winning playoff games. But it seems like year in and year out, there is no learning. We got to get more five tool guys who play defense who run the base as well, who make things happen without hitting the three-run homer. Did you guys see that ball stand hit against the Nationals the other day? It was like 120 exit velocity. It was like such a low and yet 40 rows deep home run. It was terrifying. Did you see it, Bobby? I didn't see it, but I've, I've seen I haven't, him. I haven't I watched imagine, him in baseball. I can imagine the, the punishment he puts on the batting practice Dude, balls. It was... It was like it was lower than a home run of that distance usually goes. It was just like clearly. He's I mean, he hit he hit 120. Strong. He hit 121, so it speaks for itself. But yeah, yeah. The last the last uh, six guys to hit the ball 119 miles an hour or faster are all Judge and Stanton home runs. No one else in baseball since we've been tracking exit velo. And how many how many world championships has that brought the Yankees? Is he going to hit 120 mile an hour? exit VLO home run in the postseason. I would argue not that many. Well, you don't get extra points for hitting it that far. You don't get extra points for hitting it 480. Yeah. You only get one point plus the, the, the men on the bases. <laughs> yeah. Maximum of four points, no matter how far you hit it. You should get yeah. some more. You should get a few more runs for hitting the ball and it breaks, breaks one of the chairs and the bleachers. I, I really think with this stupid season that's probably going to collapse, I really think they should put, like, things in the outfield, like, in the stands, that it's like, you hit it, you get, like, a bonus. <laughs> like, let's make it fun. Let's make it, like, you know, like, ski ball or something where there's well, that, that actually things out happened, there. Well, that actually happened, Dan. At City Field, Michael Conforto and um, Jeff McNeil's cutouts were of their dogs in right field. <laughs> And uh, someone on the Braves, I'm, I'm forgetting who, hit, hit Conforto's dog in right field. So maybe they should have. <laughs> That's awesome. So maybe they should have given him some kind of uh, donation to the Canine Society for doing that. Mm -hmm. Bobby, you'll be pleased to know, and it is a, a side note, 
I've got 17 Twitter notifications right now because I've been stirring the pot. Bobby. So, all um, right. So Dan's, Dan's real person. Darren, you spent some time with Dan. Yeah. Dan's Twitter has taken a sharp turn from like sarcastic Dan speak to like personable Twitter conversationalist, which is not like it, it sickens me. Has it? Has it? But yes. <laughs> yes, it has. And I read these tweets and I'm like, Dan didn't write that. Dan didn't, Dan didn't write this tweet. And it's baseball conversations. It's usually posting like a clip or something like uh, one podcast or article, something he wrote. I'm like, Dan didn't write that because it's not snarky enough. It needs. I've like, never she, been a snarky tweeter. Not really. Yeah, I've always she been need, pretty. She needs to. She needs to pick up on the on your tone. My wife's in marketing, so I know this. Like, you have to, you have to, you have to encompass the tone of the person you're tweeting as. So I'm going to start responding to all your tweets as Dan or not Dan. Well, what Bobby's referring to is I just have a, a, an assistant. She's just helping me with my social media, and really, what she's just doing is posting articles, like the links to them, and just like. Hey, in this video, there's bop, 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 these three things. Check it out below. I write about half of them and she writes about half of them. And you're not really going to know which because they're just like, they don't really have any personality in them. They're just like description of the piece of content that I've created. But Bobby does not like this. He wants me to be like, hey, screw you. Watch this video, idiot. That's what Bobby. That's it's not Bobby. even that. It's, it's she like, she, she definitely doesn't, she has a different tone than you would use in your, in your tweets. And I can pick up on it right away. Oh, there's been a couple of things she's put out there, yeah, that have been like Whereas, poll, poll kind of questions. Well, but the thing that's being stirred up now is the front squat stuff. So I didn't see your front squat tweet or her front squat tweet. Well, I have a video about whether front squats are good for pitchers or not because okay. from the rack position, this is a pretty oogie position for your elbows, right? This is like not great, and it's very difficult on your wrists and your, and your finger flexibility. Uh, and so when you start talking about what's good for pitchers and what's not, you can do the front squat with straps like this, which is way easier because you're holding a strap to the bar or you can do the cross arm grip. So there's three variations where you can do a front squat. And I think front squats are really excellent varieties of the squat that are safe for younger athletes. Like they're really tough and they build, I mean, they're a really, they're my favorite version of the squat. And we did those all the time with all of our athletes, not all, because it's always like personal like which if it's appropriate for one kid or not but anyway my point was this is a really tough on elbows and pitchers really value their elbows and if we can take some of this strain which there's clearly strain why would we not do this other variation or another variation that are just putting less stress on the elbows and so i've been like continuing to stir the pot on twitter about this and some people are like oh they're safe if done properly i'm like just because you do something properly doesn't mean it's okay for a certain population. Like you're doing clean and jerk in the Olympics. Yeah, this is proper, but Olympic lifters aren't baseball pitchers. You know, like who's yeah. to say that extra bit of elbow stress isn't making their elbows a little bit more barky during the season. Mm. And they're like citing research studies that say Olympics lift, Olympic lifting is safe for athletes. It's like, that's not the point. The point is, should you be adding more elbow stress during training to a pitcher who already stresses the crap out of his elbow by doing what he does for a living, which is throw baseballs? I think the answer is no. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Just a and little I don't know. So, That's Dan. So I, I woke Bobby, up to 20, to 20 notifications, and now there's a fresh new 20 now. So, Bobby, okay, could on. we say that the uh, transformation and evolution of Dan's tweets is a sign of him just aging and maturing? I mean, for we, me – we can. I was. <laughs> you would know better than me, but for me, 
Dan was a great dichotomy when he was my roommate in the Dominican. And here's a guy hitting towering fungos that the, the players were just marveling at. You know, he's a pitcher by trade, yet he's hitting these mammoth fly balls that they were probably a little scared to get under. My claim to fame. Yes. Yeah. We're back at the hotel having intellectual debates about, you know, books that have been written. So I see this guy as someone who's a real interesting dichotomy. And I think go me, go me. Yeah, go Dan. And I think what's happening on the Twitter thing is he's just kind of getting in touch with his more intellectual side, maybe now. Mm, I, get I, couldn't, that. I yeah. couldn't disagree more. I couldn't disagree more. <laughs> I think I think Dan I think Dan has has thrown Brooklyn to the fire. And I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> quote tweet her just out extensively now. Yeah. Just she does a good. She does a good job. She really. Tweets. She really does a good job because she does put out a lot more content than you're used to seeing from Dan, just on a daily basis. Like a lot of links to tweet or links to articles, links to the podcast. Not just this one. He's got other podcasts, softball podcasts. So she does a good job. It's just the tone. He could like if you know Dan, you're like, yeah, I don't know if Dan wrote. <laughs> he wouldn't say that specifically. He'd say it, but he wouldn't say it like that. I think she's surprisingly good at uh. She, we've known each other a long time, known her since she was 14 maybe, and she's 22 now. So I think she does a pretty good job of shadowing my personality as a, as a softball she's player. Close. She's, she's close. Right. She's close. She's like right on the cusp of like Dan speak, but she hasn't mastered I mean, it's not, it's not like, hey, guys, do you love front squatting? Have a great day. Like, it's it's not that. It's, it's not that. But that's how I read it. That that's would be obvious. I, in my head, that's how I read it. <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha. you. So, Darren, do you think this uh, bubble of free agency and, like, guaranteed contracts, like, what do you predict for the future? Is it going to burst? Is it going to keep just going up? You make $50 million a year playing baseball? I think it continues to go up as long as the American economy is going strong. I mean, the teams aren't going to make the same revenues with no fans in the seats and having cutouts of dogs. But the <laughs> bottom line is it's not about winning. It's about profitability. So, you know, the Yankees and the Angels – haven't been winning championships with these gigantic free agent signings and these huge payrolls, but boy, they're selling a lot of Mike Trout jerseys and Shohei Otani, you know, different kinds of merchandise products. So whether the Yankees win or not, they're still going to be profitable. So I say, yes, the bubble continues to grow and it doesn't burst. Well, what about a year ago? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Bob. I was going to say, ahead. I think it's different when you have a home, like a Mike Trout, who came up through your system, you had him for those quote-unquote free years, and then you pay him, as opposed to the Yankees, who it's every year, all right, who are the Yankees going to pluck from some other team? Right, and who are the Mets going to try and sign? I think it's it's a little bit different in that aspect, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, the big money contracts haven't necessarily been paying off. Well, last year, there was just all these calls of collusion, right? Like they were waiting, like Dallas Keuchel mm -hmm. didn't get signed until April. I mean, what was your take on all that? Was that a normal thing? I mean, was that a right or wrong thing to do for – I don't know if there was actual collusion. I mean, what was your take on last year's weird free agent period? Yeah, so I found that really interesting. In the world of economics, there's this concept of game theory where corporations and firms tend to compete with each other and try to outdo each other without the other one knowing what they're doing. And it seemed like the opposite was occurring. They were cooperating. A guy by the name of John Nash talked about this concept of cooperating with each other. And it seemed like, because we never had free agents that were unsigned 
or holdouts like you have in the NFL so often. And you mentioned Keuchel, and I believe there were several relievers in that in that realm yeah, as Kim, well. Kim, Kimbrell, I think, right? Yeah, I think Kimbrell, it's Kim, Kimbrell, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if Papelbon was one, but it seemed like there were a few other players. Mm-hmm. But the point, the point being, it was new territory for, for MLB baseball, and it certainly seemed like the owners were colluding. We don't know it for fact, but it was like they had enough. But the bottom line is those guys that we're talking about, Dan, are not the premier guys. They're not the Garrett Coles. They're not the Bryce Harpers. It's those lower rung end of uh, level free agents that it was occurring with kind of guys at the tail end of their career i mean kimbrell was a little bit fringe because he'd had a rougher season but keichel wasn't i mean he was still one of the best starters available right i mean but you're probably right on the whole i mean i think probably everyone else besides those two was probably what you said they were like the seven or eight million dollar guys right not the 20 million dollar guys yeah, and we don't know what their agents were doing with the negotiations and if there was a little too much arrogance. I don't know who represented Keiko, but certainly those backdoor negotiations can be part of that equation as well. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Maybe we should like start throwing like livestock into it. Like, all right, $7 million, <laughs> 300 head of cattle, you know, 1,000 chickens, and uh, you know, a, a family farm in Wyoming. Deal, deal. We got to we got to start hedging our bets, you know, if the world ends, um, if our current president gets elected again, you know, head head, you know, livestock might might be the new currency. Gold. Gotta Speaking of which, um, Bobby, we need your one minute take. Is your president going to get elected again? Uh, I think so. Oh, that's think... not a it's not a confident response from from Robert. I think he does. I. I don't know. I mean, who knows? I, there's literally 45% are going to vote one way, 45 or the other. There's like 10% of people that decide every election. I think he gets elected again. I think. Well, here's my question. Here's my question for you. Does anyone who didn't vote for him the first time, and it was very, obviously it was a very narrow victory. Does anyone who didn't vote for him vote for him this time? Um, I think so. Really? I think so. I think maybe. he loses votes. I don't think he gains any new votes. And I think that's why he loses probably. But I don't know. I don't follow. Like, I don't. <laughs> you don't follow like, Donald Trump? No, Darren, no, what's, your, follow, Darren, what's, your, what, what's your take? What's your take? I don't follow like elections like that. Uh, my take is it's all about the virus. And I, I'm not optimistic about the virus improving. I mean, maybe we get a vaccine that's more definitive by November when the election occurs. But I don't think the virus is going to die down between now and November. If anything, as the cold weather and flu season is upon us, things might get worse, sadly. So I think if the virus situation gets worse, it's going to be harder for him to be reelected. I, I think your question's an interesting one, Dan, and that is, are there going to be more people that vote for him or don't vote for him than last election? And I think there are a lot of people who are Donald Trump supporters that don't openly admit it. Whereas people on the other side of the aisle, I think they're more readily to admit and be outspoken about supporting their Democrat candidate. So Bobby might be right. There might be people who don't want to transition in president during this very volatile time in our country. And there are a lot of people who love Donald Trump's economics, just to come back to something I'm familiar with. 
Mm-hmm. He has he did a two point three trillion dollar spending plan, which helped our economy. He did a tax cut that helped our economy. He's definitely trying to influence the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell's adding liquidity to the economy. And he's been a sage to the stock market. And a lot of people, and you guys were talking about stocks in a comical sense with the Dominican before, but the stock market's pretty much at record highs, especially the NASDAQ. And we have this horrible unemployment, a GDP shrinkage. So a lot of people vote with their pocketbook. So I think there are people, as Bobby mentioned, that may vote for him who didn't previously because of financial reasons. I wonder how many people will vote period based on the two options that are presented. Like you could not like Trump and also look at whether it's going to be Biden or somebody else and think, why even bother? Well, that was, I think, I think is a realistic uh, like consideration for a lot of people. I think it was a very prevalent attitude before because Hillary was clearly awful. I think Biden is a lot less awful. So I think people before were like, ah, I don't want to vote for Trump, but Hillary's the worst, so I'll just vote for him. Now it's but, like but Biden many, seems like yeah, pretty as like many like knocks right. against her as you had. She would be the first woman president. Like she would have she would have a group like probably a pretty prevalent group of people that were pushing for her to be president just based on, you know, gender equality and She'd be breaking down a lot of barriers, like in the. I think she would have done fine. I I don't. I didn't have any like really negative. I just like, you just start to see like the just the just dishonesty of like everyone in the Mm -hmm. government. That was my general. Yeah, my general feeling about her was just like, eh. But I I think uh, she would have been a good president. I don't know. Dan, let me ask you a question. Who do you think wins in a debate? Biden or Trump, because their personalities are different. The way they speak is different. So I think that's going to be interesting. I think Trump, about political Trump without a doubt. I think without a doubt, it's Trump. I do think Biden right. is like kind of slow to the punch for sure. And Donald Trump exactly. is very, a very powerful persuader. Can I rephrase I mean, that? That's his, big, his biggest asset. Can I rephrase that question? How entertaining would that debate be? Just from a just from ah, a look at this guy. He's half asleep. He's a, hey, Joe. You need some. You need some warm milk, Joe. Let me if get he, you one, Joe. He is, as he drinks one, his water with two hands. Like, if he's one thing, like if if he's one thing, he's he is funny. Like he says funny things. He like he'll tweet funny things. He'll tweet funny memes. Like that would be pure entertainment. Even if you don't like him, you're still gonna watch. Like it's entertaining. Like people watch his show. All you know. It's like a show. He's a. It's a reality show. The last. It's that's all it is, and it's hilarious. Yeah, but and that's what the thing is. People are tired of that. Like it's. It's the thing is. It's not a reality show. It's our country. So are you going to watch I'm that tired. debate, I'm, Dan? Uh, I don't have a TV, so probably not. Yeah, and I, that's and I'm, right. I, I, I really enjoy being less plugged into all of the interwebs. So probably not. But maybe, maybe. Bobby, let me ask you. Oh, you talked about Hillary. Do you think? the Democrats are going to make sure there's more of a grassroots voting presence. A lot of people thought the Democrats became complacent in 2016 because yeah. Obama had won back-to-back terms and they took for granted and they just assumed Hillary was going to win and they kind of slept on Donald Trump as a candidate. Do you think that'll be different this time around and they'll really galvanize the masses to come out and vote? Uh, I don't. I feel like the I feel like enthusiasm around Biden. I don't think Biden is going to be the one on the ticket personally, but I don't think. 
I feel like the guy from like, B from Vendetta is he, is he in the running? <laughs> Seems like somebody, somebody like the guy that hosts The Bachelor or something. At this point, uh, I think it actually is going to be Kamala Harris or um, who's the woman he just beat uh, in the primaries. Oh, right. Um, no, Trump calls her Pocahontas. Oh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Wait, yes. Biden has the nomination, doesn't he? Does he, he not? does, but I just I think they're going to ride out his. Like, if you let him take all the law, I mean, this is very political. I don't think swap I'm not an last expert. Minute. Yeah. I, if you let him ride out and take all the lumps from Trump all the way through, like, September, and then just take him off the ticket, like, oh, he's mentally, you know, he can't he can't handle it. And then you throw somebody else new in there. It's basically like a, a, like a shot of adrenaline. He, Trump, you know, not even Trump, just the Republicans in general don't have a chance to basically dig up as much on her as they might want to attack her as much as they might want to. Like she brings a, she, whoever, or he, whoever, maybe will bring a little bit more energy. Cause Biden has essentially been in his basement. I feel like for the last he has no energy. Yeah. So I think, I think that either if he does make it all the way to the ticket and maybe wins, I don't think he lasts more than a year in office. Like I think they just, I don't know what the amendment is where you could, where a president is, incapable of performing the job that you pull him off and give it to the vice president. But I feel like he's, he's short in the tooth for whatever in whatever capacity he's going to be in politics. Yeah. I don't know. Um, let's get back to baseball real quick. Although this, this was probably the most sane, the most sane <laughs> political clip that we've had. We should Bobby, Bobby has changed a lot. I'm bringing know. the, I'm bringing yeah. the, the heat here. No, you brought no heat at all. You brought warm milk. You brought warm Biden uh, oatmeal. Just uh, yeah, that's that's fine. That's good. Typically, there's at least a couple of theories. Bobby, are you going to take the coronavirus vaccine? Absolutely not. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Just go around sneezing and coughing on everyone. I got yelled at. I didn't even bring this up. I got yelled at in a, in a Starbucks yesterday because I had my mask like – like right, like right here, because I was on the phone. But I was also like twenty feet. I was in the corner, like I stood away from everybody. Mm. And this guy yelled at me, and I yelled back because I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm like itching for confrontation at this point. So I'm like, of course I'm gonna yell back at this guy. I'm like, mind your own business. And then they're like, well, bring your drink outside. I'm like, fine, bring it outside to me. I don't care. And I walked outside. So I got, I got reprimanded in a Starbucks. Well, did you hear what they did in DC? Have we talked about this yet? No. They, you have to wear a mask at all times, indoor, outdoor, outside of your what? home. What? Which I just, like, I agree with wearing masks. I wear them all indoors. I do what I'm supposed to do. I don't complain about it. It's fine. It's not a big deal. But I just don't see the logic in the fact that restaurants are still open where you can mm -hmm. sit down and just eat and be merry and whatever, laugh on each other. Uh, but if you're walking on the sidewalk by yourself, you have to have a mask on. Like, I just don't really understand the logic there. Um, the logic is business, Dan. The logic is we have to save our economy, so restaurants need to stay open. And I, get that. I support and I support the restaurants staying yeah. open. I don't think they should close. I think that's yeah. fine. Yeah. It just seems like a strange double standard where you can sit. Like, I've seen some of these outdoor patios, and they're packed with people now, which is fine, which, again, I'm, I have no issue with that whatsoever. But then if you're, like, going to, like – say that I, I, I have to be masked up on the sidewalk outside around no one. I don't get how that logically makes sense. Wait, I just so want there to be logical the, consistency. 
like I could be, I could be, I could be fined up to a thousand dollars, which I'm sure will never happen, but I could be fined for not wearing a mask walking down the street. No way. Mm -hmm. It's time to move. But but you could sit, but you could sit on an outdoor patio and have five beers with your friends, you know, six feet from the next table. That's it. Five be fine. Huh? I mean, you know, you have 15 beers, whatever you want. I just like, I just feel like that's a strange overreaction where she's like, well, numbers are climbing a little bit. I think our, our mayor's done a really good job, but numbers are climbing a bit. So you have to wear a mask at all times. Now it's like, is that really the reason that they're climbing people like passing each other on the sidewalks, like out in a park and outdoors? Mm -hmm. Like I breathe out of Mm -hmm. my nose and I, and a lot of the research on mask use, which I think is interesting they talk about how important masks can be at, at, at uh, stomping down a cough, but they're talking about an explosive. So there, there's this, this one study that I read was about, you know, an explosive cough. So without a mask, it'll go, it'll shoot particles up to 10 feet away with a mask on only like two feet away, which is a great reduction. But what if you're just walking around breathing out of your nose? My air is going down. I mean, what, what is the, the radius it's extending and I'm not coughing you know what I mean? Like, I don't that's, really, is that's DC why I don't really first? understand. And again, I'm not going to complain about it. It's not a big deal. I just like, that doesn't make logical sense to me. Like is DC I'll, the I'll, first I'll follow place the rules. I'm not sure. I don't know. So I put it on. Um, I mean, when I'm like, there's times outside when I don't, you know, but when I get to closer where there's a lot of people around, I'll put it on. Like, it's fine. It's not a big deal. But at the same time, it just like doesn't. I have a. I have a make a lot of logical sense. Okay. How many people do you see out that are just not wearing them, or is everybody just the, the vast majority wear masks outside? Really? Even when they're jogging by themselves, which again, it's like that doesn't make sense. That like, if that was if it was that contagious, we'd all have it by now. If, right. Which if that's if your prerogative, is, that's fine. But I just like I want it, I want I want there to be logic. What constitutes Any, anything a mask? covering your face? I don't like, know. could it be like? porous crocheted mask like, i mean well, that's the thing, that's that's the thing like, cut, cut them out cut them out like it's not like hey you need to have an n95 mask or you need to have a like yeah those the masks that i have this thing is like a piece of tissue paper and i don't even wear it and well, i'm not that's sure what, i'm not saying it's right or wrong but like if there's no you know like seatbelts have mandated like you need to be able to sustain a certain amount of whatever for uh, pressure impact to be safe there is no safe mask like you could can i wear something to cover my face and then cut a hole for my mouth like is that that's a mask. obviously no idiot but that's a but that's a mask <laughs> but you see my you see my yeah, my I, point I, though well there's also that's a, thing. a good one yeah like, who's sure. gonna argue I mean, with you if you're wearing something that's covering your face but it's got holes in it be, like because it's crocheted i mean no, it's, it's totally no fun but it. Yeah. yeah, there's been no mandates on this. So a lot of the Gators, I'm, I'm coaching my son's 12-year-old team, and we have to have masks, but these little thin Gators that people wear around their neck and then briefly pull above their nose, that's not going to work as well as an N95 and then everything in between. So the mandates and even the punishments for not having a gun, there's so much variability and hands-off approach that it's so hard to say it's going to help society unless they're actually going to mandate what mask works and there's going to be real punishments for people who don't wear them. And some of that is the production, the supply side. We don't have enough N95s. We just don't have enough effective masks. We have a lot of those paper dust masks that probably don't work that well. Yeah. Well, I think the the overall thing is, 
Yeah. Like there's no specifications like, Hey, your mask needs to be yeah. four by six, like a index card. And it's gotta be two millimeters thick and whatever. I mean, it, I don't know. I don't know what mask. Well, they could never possibly check everyone. Like they're not going to stop people in the street and like, sir, is your mask one millimeter? Or is it two millimeters? Sir, why is your why is your mask have a big cut? But I did right? see an article about a lot of people who are wearing like these respirator masks that you would wear like doing sanding or painting and they have a, a one-way valve. So when you breathe out, the valve opens up so you can push that air out and then the valve closes so it filters air coming in. They're like, that's not the one you want to wear because now you're <laughs> breathing out your bad air out through that valve. That's the opposite of what we want to have happen. We want the air filtered both ways. So mm. I saw that article, which was reasonable. Because a lot of people have those those one-way valves because that makes sense if you're doing painting in your home or you're sanding or something. Those are respirators, right? But um, I mean, the, the study that I read, which was interesting, is just like, look, even a cloth mask does a really good job of stopping these bigger particles that are, you know, these liquid particles that you're going to spit out when you're laughing or talking or sneezing or coughing, which is definitely a good thing. Like, I get that. That's completely fine. Um, I just, it just, there's so much... I don't know. Feels in, like, oh, feels oh. insane to wear it outdoors with like with distance with distance from people. Even yeah. like just in general, like if you're I'm almost at the point where like it needs this this would need to be like people key like if you got it, you need to be like in like shock, like epileptic you know, epileptic shock for it what to you, justify what, what are you saying? I'm saying like if you're walking down the street and you cross, you come across somebody that has it, like it needs to like affect you instantly and like noticeably. To I don't know, I don't know what you're saying. Wearing mask to wearing a mask <laughs> outside in public, like I mean, I don't know about air. that. I don't know about that. I'm just saying it doesn't. There's so much in open air. They're just, I don't know. Got a nice shot of Darren's leg, but um, I, I got like, I got to show a little flesh, Dan. Indoors, like did you, did you see the Delta flight turned around because two passengers refused to wear the masks? Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. I never happened heard just, about that. Happened just yesterday, I think. Which is wow. fair. Like, look, if you know the rules, and that's the thing. Like, here in D.C., indoors, it's been a rule for a long time. You have to wear masks to go into a store. So, it's just like, don't complain about it. It's fine. Just put it on. Go about your business. And it's the same thing with these flights. Like, you have to wear a mask on Delta. And then two passengers, after they took off, were like, no. And they're like, all right, we're going back. <laughs> which is crazy, but I think that's reasonable. Like at the end of the day, like we've had no shirt, no, sh no shoes, no service for forever. Right. If that's the rules, just you, you got to put a shirt on before you go in a, sh in a store. Like they have those in all the beach towns, someplace you can go in without a shirt, someplace you can't, and you just got to abide their rules. That's fair. Right. Um, it's fair for the, it's like, for like indoor. Yeah, you're going, you're yeah. using their service, but like mm -hmm. walking outside, is that, somebody's service like are you you're just no you're and again like i i think if you're maintaining your distance if you're not sick if you're not coughing and sneezing i think you should be fine outdoors without a mask so that's again that's where i like kind of get off it a little bit so but fringing on my right whatever. to run shirtless and maskless through the city well at the end of the day i still don't understand like the intense anger about it like i'm not in i'm not angry about it i think it's a little silly like i think it's a little necessary the outdoor thing that's just happened here but it's not a big deal it's just really not but people are like the, raging, the raging. Why are well, they raging? The because at, when they take a little bit of your freedom away at a time, like you don't get that back. You don't get your freedoms back. Like, what does that mean? You don't get your freedoms back. You don't get your freedoms back. Like we used to, you used to go like uh, 
go to the airport and check in for the, like checking in for the airport is drastically improved, like uh, not improved. Um, it's become much, much stricter after 9-11, rightfully so, right? But it's not like, oh, if it's going to go back, like nothing's ever gone back to the way it used to be. Like the more they take, the more it's permanently taken away from you. So if you're going to have to wear masks, like at no point, I, I don't see in the foreseeable future, like wh- at what point is the mayor of DC going to be like, okay, you don't have to wear masks anymore. At like some that point, right, it, will, it will happen. It will that happen. right is being taken away from you. And people see that as like, oh, well, like gun rights. People argue gun rights all the time. Yeah. Like, oh, well, when they make them more strict and more strict, at some point, like you're not getting lesser restrictions on, you know, gun, like being able to own a gun. You're only getting more just to the point where they're going to make it impossible for you to make, you know, get a gun. That's at least where I think people are coming from. Like you're, you're taking more and more of my rights away and I'm not going to get those rights back. And it's over the course of U S history. I feel like when they take rights away, they're not giving them back willingly. Like the more government has control, the more they can make you do what you, what they want you to do. Is I it, think, let me ask you guys ahead. this. Is it a, is it a rights thing? People feel their rights are being infringed on or is it a discipline thing? For instance, I was at a driving range hitting golf balls and I would say four of us had masks on and about 40 people didn't. And we're about, five to seven feet away i don't know the number in these golf stalls and i heard some people saying oh you know i can't really hit the golf ball with my mask on oh it's so annoying in the heat so is it a discipline thing or is it more of a my rights are being infringed upon as an american and this is what our country was built on my liberty by discipline what do you mean well, what I mean is we have the highest per capita rate right now among developed countries of the coronavirus. If you look at the rate of infection per capita, per person, the U.S. leads the world, the developed world in it. So my question is, why is that? Is it because what Bobby's saying, people feel their oh. rights are being infringed on or they just don't have the darn discipline to, to, to put it on when they on? need to? Yeah, I'd say it's and, the latter. I'd say, the, I'd say it's the latter. Period. Yeah. I think it's I I obviously think it's the former. I think it's I think it's people wow. feel like their rights are being infringed. But I think everybody's got the discipline to wear a mask. And kind of what what I was trying to get across before, if people were seeing like 60, 70 million people hospitalized because of this, I don't think there'd be any question that 100 percent of people would be wearing a mask and probably staying locked down in their house for as long as possibly needed. But when you're when you're talking about like 99.8 some percent of people are fine from it, like no issues, you know, after the fact, whatever the, the number is over 99%. And then now they're like, like Illinois just went like, well, you can't travel to Wisconsin and come back without quarantining yourself for 14 days. You can't travel to Indiana, Iowa. So if you leave Illinois essentially, and you try and come back to your home, you have to stay quarantined in your house for 14 days. And that's like, like that's an different, like, so now I'm basically locked in my house. I'm locked in my state. I have no freedom to travel, even though it's, we're in a free country. I feel like the outlook of it is this isn't as serious to, to take away my right to do certain things, to walk outside without a mask, to, to be able to travel to different, you know, drive to a different state, go see family. Like I can't, I can't hold a service if my if a relative passes away. I can't have people come watch, uh, or come pay their respects to, let's say, a parent. But I can riot and protest in the street at all hours of night with thousands of people. 
like there's a, I feel like people's sensibilities are being juggled and it, people are getting angry. I just think people are getting angry that they're being told to do certain things, but a mm. certain section of the population is not being held to those same standards, whatever. I mean, I just think it's more, it's more freedom based and it's, we've been also, it's been like this for over five months now. I think it's run its course as far as patience is concerned. I would say that we're whinier than probably any other country though. We're more spoiled and whiny and I think undisciplined than any other country probably. Oh, I can't do this <laughs> for a month or two. I mean, that is America. Is it not? Is there any country, yeah. Bobby, is there any country that you can think is more whiny than America and entitled? Um, maybe Canada. There's, there's no way. No way. There, no way. No way. Canada, England, way more England. disciplined, tougher people. England? Probably not. They've been around. You have to bash one of those two countries. I just think we're the whiniest country by a huge margin in the, in the, in the whole world. Darren, we're I think, this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's hard to argue with that, um, especially <laughs> especially as someone who um, you know teaches school systems and gets a lot of parent conferences and emails. <laughs> mm, yeah, this is well, true. It's, it's an interesting too because you see, like Italy is is basically wide open again, and Italy was just all you heard about in the beginning was Italy was How just bad totally it was. ravaged. Yeah, and China is essentially open for the most part. And it started in China. So it's like, why is the U.S. different? Like, I think people are just waking up and are asking questions they wouldn't normally ask of your government leaders, like your local government leaders. Why, why are we different? Like, we're the most, essentially, we're the richest country and the most medically advanced country to some aspect. Like, why are we locked down and everybody else is essentially open and some places never closed? I think people are just asking questions, which I'm totally for. Ask, that's like my thing anyways. Uh, maybe it's not. <laughs> That's your thing when you just want to stir the pot. And you're like, hey, Darren, is there an alien in your house right now? Maybe there is. Maybe there is. Like, like, Darren's That's... like, absolutely not. There's not an alien. Yeah, maybe, there's, maybe there is. Check, the, check yeah. the fridge. My four-year-old dog behaves like an alien, so I will say, yes, there is an alien here. See? Well, maybe he's an alien. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so, Darren, what are your, what are your predictions for this, uh, this season? Do you think – I mean, the Marlins thing is a very big nail yeah. in this coffin. What are, what are your predictions? I wish I could be more optimistic, but we're within the first few days of the season, and the Marlins already had that outbreak or that pocket of virus, and it shut down the Yankee-Philly game because the Marlins played the Phillies, and it leads to that whole snowball spiral effect, and I could see that continuing. So – it's hard for me to believe that we'll get through even 50% of the 60-game season. Yeah. Bobby, what are your, what's your take? I think unless somebody gets seriously hospitalized or potentially dies, I think it's going. I think this season – I think there's a World Series and everything. Wow. That's such a profoundly bad take. There's like no <laughs> shot that's the, that's the real – that's what that's happens. Happening. That's, what, that's yeah. an option, though. It's on the list of options. Maybe, and that's maybe, option, maybe it does. Maybe it does. Maybe they play the whole – I think they – I honestly do think they play the whole season. I, they knew – they knew this was risky. And whether they got to postpone games, play double headers, there's no way that they sign that paper saying, we're going to pay you guys to play and not play. Like I said, it's going to have to be something drastic. Just because these guys have been quarantined for two weeks, that's not drastic. Most of them are healthy, 
you know, middle, you know, mid twenties adults, like they're going to be fine. And if somebody gets hospitalized and so, and it's, it takes on like a real form or if the players just decide we're not going to play, then I think it goes through a hundred percent. I don't think there's any way they stop the season and stop making wow. money. I mean, you don't have to be in good shape to be a, to be a manager or to be a coach or to That's be an true. athletic trainer. So one of but, these guys, one of these guys yeah. with a beer belly gets sick. And no, that's what I'm saying. If one of them gets seriously ill, higher at risk or whatever. Yeah. If one of them gets seriously ill, I think they. I think it's not just the players; it's all the peripheral people that make the. I mean, there's so many people that play a supporting Mm -hmm. role. Right, but that's. I think that's the only way. Like, just because the Marlins had a, a, you know, a dozen people have it and they got to be quarantined. Just a just a just a dozen. (laughs) It's like ten percent. It's like ten percent. They're not. They're not stopping. Like, there's no. They're not stopping for that. We'll play doubleheader. I I think just a couple players that speak out on Twitter against it, and it's and it's a wrap. A couple players are like, we got to stop doing this. But like if, if, Sean, if Sean Doolittle uses his platform some more and's like, I'm out. But like, Sean, but I there's so many guys. There's just guys that will take his place, and that's the problem with being the player. Like the players are, the players are temporary. Like the ownership is essentially permanent. Like they're if that season's gonna go, all of the players like it's got to be a collective walkout. I don't think you're like, I just think they're going to, I don't think they're going to say no to the money. I think you have to play. They're going to play at this point. Darren, what do you think when, I mean, there's a, there's a point when the product degrades too, right? Yeah, probably. But you still watch it. I mean, we were watching cornhole tournaments and darts on ESPN. I wasn't. I wasn't. You don't have a TV, Dan. No, I wouldn't watch cornhole. I'd rather, there's so many things I'd rather do. You you would if you could gamble on it. Darren, what's your take? Yeah, the business of it's interesting. You follow companies like Penn Gaming and DraftKings. Those companies are thriving off of the, the gambling that's occurring on these sports, including baseball. And then you've got the notion that it might get shut down and those stocks, you were talking about stocks before, they immediately take a, a pullback. What I'd like to pose is what's going to happen to our three cities? Dan, you've got the Washington Nationals trying mm-hmm. to repeat. Bobby, you've got a White Sox and Cubs team that are trying to get back to the big dance. And I've got the Yankees, who are the 5-2 to two favorites or 7-2 to two favorites to win the World Series along with the L.A. Dodgers. So I want to hear from you, Bobby, since you think the season's going to go through the World Series. Who's going to win it all, Bobby? Is it, is it your Chicago Cubs or is it my Yankees? It's going to be my Chicago White Sox. I don't think there's even – I can't believe they're not the favorite already, but – <laughs> I think it's I think it's the season's gonna happen. I know who it's not gonna be. It's not gonna be the Marlins because half <laughs> their team can't play currently. Uh I do like the Yankees. I think the Yankees have a shot. I think the Nationals have a shot. I think anybody with two solid starting pitchers and a the decent lineup. Like I like the twins lineup. I mean the twins just mash. But if you get I gotta pick one team from each league, I'm going with the White Sox. And I do like the Nationals. I really like well, the Nationals. the White Sox are thriving because they've been playing in front of no fans for like a decade. Yeah, so they've been ready for this. This is, their, this is their moment. <laughs> this is their joke. moment. Let's wrap this up. Now we're just getting <laughs> below the belt jokes. The Orioles, and the, the Orioles and the Marlins and the White Sox were the front runners. If, if in a perfect world, the World Series this year would be either Mets-Yankees or Cubs-White Sox because that would be – a national that would be a thing 
I, th- I think that because it's not – has it happened? It happened with the Yankees and Mets, correct, in two, like 2000? 2000. 2000. I think a Cubs-White Sox World Series, I think something to that magnitude is, is, would be the best situation for the, for the Major League Baseball. So I'm going to predict White Sox-Cubs. Okay. With the White Sox winning in a sweep. I'm going Yankees-Dodgers, which I think would be a fascinating World Series as well. And that Dodger lineup, one through nine, with their pitching staff, to me, is the best in baseball. It's Yes. It, that's, an ins, that's an unfair lineup and depth. I mean, they could probably field a, two starting nines that would make the playoffs. Yeah. Yep. They got three, four possible MVP candidates in that lineup. It's crazy. Mookie Betts, 10 years. Darren, how do you feel about that contract? Right now, you love Mookie Betts. You look at what he's done. Seems like he's a so quality good. character. He's really guy, good at baseball. He's very I good would, at baseball. I would, yeah, I've heard that. But I would bet seven <laughs> years from now, that contract gets the negative vote. Well, and is that how they? I mean, is that how they're thinking about this? They're like, "Hey, he's worth fifty million a year for five years, so, or whatever, you know, whatever." I know we got what three fifty for 10, 10 years. Is that right? So you yeah, say, so "Hey, he's worth he's worth seventy million for five years, and then the rest of that's just like whatever." I think the Dodgers are super thirsty. They've been close. They're knocking on the door. They haven't gotten there, and now we've got our leadoff hitter, and this is going to put us over the top. Is their mentality? So that's why they did it. We're finally going to get the cherished ring because we got our, you know, MVP slash leadoff styled player. Yeah, Mookie Betts is pretty good. I was surprised at that contract, but he's a good player. So is Jacoby Ellsbury. So was Jacoby four years ago. Well, who was who was better going into their contract? Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to argue uh, against Jacoby. I mean, we forget about it, but he was stealing 30 plus bases a year and hitting for power and playing a phenomenal center field. So I'd have to give, I'd have to say that's a toss up. Which is, uh, I mean, that's saying something because I'm looking at Mookie Betts' stats right now for 20, was it 2015 to 2019? I mean, they're pretty good. Like he's got some solid numbers. His MVP year was crazy, but Jacoby Ellsbury, I mean, speed, power, playing center field. I mean, he was, he was the guy in Boston. Like he was the, Pedroia was the, was like the heart of that team, but Ellsbury was the production. We lost Aaron. No, he goes, he just comes in and out. He's like a outdoor cat, you know, just (laughs) comes and goes as he comes, comes and goes as he pleases. It's, It's classic coach gurney. Um, so Bob, what do you have on tap this, uh, this coming week for your teams? Got a lot of tryouts. It's tryouts. It's crazy. Is it tryout season already? Wow. It's insane. This is honestly – some teams have did tryouts the, the week after the 4th of July. They keep pushing it up. That's I hate that. It's terrible because we're going so late this year, and there's going to be overlap of guys that go other places that are still playing. And, and I'm doing tryouts without even getting out a chance to go watch some of these kids play. Um, you know, live games and get an idea of how they perform in games. Like it, it's well. What's it's your ridiculous? What's your? Uh, I mean, 
everyone essentially does, they try to get their tryouts in first and then they force kids to give them an answer before they can go to another tryout. Is that, that sort of the way it works in Chicago as well? Yeah, exactly the way it works. I try and give everyone at least a week to make a decision. And it's not because it's, it's, Hey, you commit to us or, you know, get the Mm -hmm. hell out of here. It's look, if you're not going to commit to us, it's fine. I just need to know because there's other kids that, or I need to hold another tryout or, you know, I, I just don't want to get stuck with, a situation with like seven players for an age group and that's you normally need 12 and now we're searching for five kids which is very difficult to do and then you have to go back to those seven and say hey i'm sorry i can't fill the team for you guys that's that's the worst situation so yeah, yeah it's, you tough. Have to, it's a it's a tough situation but we're doing them we're hardcore tryouts no masks at tryouts also so- no touching coaches how do you not do masks? I feel like you have to do masks. No masks. Uh, we take a temperature before is that they just, come in. Is that just because you're you or, or no. what? I mean, there's no mask mandate like for youth sports. Okay. Um, I don't come anywhere near the players. The other two coaches that are there don't come anywhere near the players. Uh, we kind of just direct from 20 feet away or whatever and take their temperature before they come in, waivers no parents allowed groups, you know, the group's got to be under 50. Now that's the phase I think we're in under 50 players. Mm-hmm. So we're just try and get them in and out. I try not to have them there long hour, 40 minutes, two hours max. I mean, once they finish and trying to like, Hey, good luck. Well, you know, thanks for coming. Here's the info. We'll see you later. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the tryout situation is tough because, I mean, what do you advise your parents to do? Do you say, hey, try to hit a couple tryouts, try to hit – like what, what, what would you advise a parent who, like, wants to try out for you and maybe wants to try out for two other teams? Uh, I tell them to just I go – I'm like, hey, go try out. If you – you know, I always say at our tryout, I'm like – or at our – to our teams, you might not play – you might play for us next year, you might not. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is what you need to know. You know, if you go to another team, they're going to expect you to – do these things like they're expecting you to show up to the tryout with your shirt tucked in and properly equipped. I go, they're going to expect you to know how to throw the ball around the infield. I said, it's not just, it's not exclusive to our program. You know, there's plenty of programs. I, I actually offer, especially for the high school guys, because that's, that's a big one, like 15 U to 16 U te- kids decide what team they want to try and push them to college essentially. And I tell you, look, I'll tell you everything I know about the other programs. I'm friendly with most of the guys in the area. Uh, we'll give you the, I'll give you the best, you know, the best advice I can. But I'm like, if you're, if you're worried about getting, like, what are your issues for leaving? Is it playing time? Well, is it the team you're on? If you're on the B team, essentially, like, is that, are you going to go there and be on the A team? Is there a team playing the same tournaments that our B team plays in? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you can't don't just leave because you want to you want to leave and you think you're better than you know player b that's playing over you like way what's going to get me to the next level and i'm open with it because players come and go all the time it's not personal like i don't take it personal i know you didn't take it personal if guys wanted to leave mm-hmm. yeah i feel like it's uh it should be clear that look you don't owe us any you know it's one year contract essentially right do your job we'll do ours you don't owe us anything you don't you know we don't owe you anything just you know i think loyalty is always good but people should do what they need to do what's what's best for what's best for them um so as we wrap up here coach gurney 
what advice would you have for parents out there? You've worked with a lot of kids over the years. What advice would you give parents, whether it's, I don't know, anything, what, like what, what's your little podium here to, uh, your hill to, to die on as far as things that are good for young ball players? Yeah, it sounds pretty simple, but I would keep it fun. It's so important that baseball and sports and activities, let's not lose concept that it has to be fun. It can't be all about, I want to build his or her profile so that they get into a good college and possibly get a scholarship. It can't be all about productivity and in building your resume. It has to be about fun. And it also can't be about the parent trying to relive his or her dreams through their child. So those would be the two things I would say. Um, and make sure it's healthy, that's all. Is it a healthy activity for them physically and emotionally? So those would be my, my little takes on that, Dan. What do you think are some of the emotional pitfalls that parents should say, okay, what, what does that mean? What are some emotional pitfalls they should avoid? Is this like comparison on social media? Is this like, like what is it? Too much pressure? Well, I think social media is going to occur regardless of the kid playing sports. And there's unfortunately a lot of that social media bullying, cyber bullying mm -hmm. that occurs. But what I mean is the parent putting a lot of undue pressure on the kid because they've invested three, $4,000 in this travel team and $100 for a hitting or a pitching lesson over the years. So they're, they're invested time-wise and monetarily-wise. So then they put a lot yeah. of pressure on the kid to perform and – that leads to a lot of angst and stress for the, for the player or the kid. Yeah, that's fair. Bobby, you agree with that? Yeah, I definitely like agree. I mean, pot, pot committed kind of essentially. Yeah. I mean, you're, it's more than just getting a scholarship or, you know, trying to make it to the big leagues. I mean, it's hopefully you're, you're with a, either an individual or a team or a, a bunch of coaches that are trying to, you know, bring more value than just, my son might make it to division one and that's you try if a good organization will do that and you should try and seek out those guys. But it's, I agree. It's, you can't throw all your eggs in the one basket and hope like full ride or bust. And it's, it, it feels like you're, you're walking your kid into failure essentially because nobody gets full ride, especially in baseball. Yeah. So Darren, appreciate you, uh, you coming on the show today. It was a really fun conversation. And definitely, you know, with you pitching us sort of the economics talk, um, I ended up going a lot of cool directions today. I think it was really unique for the shows that we've had. It wasn't, wasn't too much on the coaching side, but a nice different perspective on baseball. So we appreciate you. Where can people find you on the web? Where would you like to direct them to? So my Twitter handle is Coach Gurney. And that's also my email, coachgurney at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to continue the discussion with any of your listeners. Feel free to hit me up on either of those two mediums. And this has been a lot of fun for me, Dan, reconnecting with you since our trip to the DR. Yeah, and good times. Bobby, really enjoyed your perspective as well. Um, definitely different <laughs> than most people's perspectives, you know, in my area here. But there's definitely... A lot of people like you out there. I probably just don't hear from them. <laughs> Bobby, Bobby and I have a show. healthy, we have a healthy debate. We're very polarized sure. or opposite ends of the spectrum. So if you're going to follow Coach Gurney, it's G-U-R-N-E-Y. So at Coach Gurney, G-U-R-N-E-Y on social media or Coach Gurney at gmail.com, right? Did I get that? Yeah, Perfect. that's exactly right. And hopefully you and I will be doing some international coaching 
once all these travel restrictions and the virus gets under control, you know, love to do a trip to Japan with you or possibly Cuba in the coming years. Yeah. Tell, tell Pete, tell Pete, our, our travel broker put us together. I want to go to Japan quite, quite badly, but yeah, if you're appearing out there as a last note, these international trips can are definitely expensive, but I know that the kids that went with us, um, really had a profound experience as far as just, I mean, they wanted to essentially give every piece of equipment that they had away to these kids, just helping them and just seeing just how respectful and humble and hardworking the players were with nothing. It was really a worthwhile experience, even though it was expensive because, you know, flights to foreign country, hotels, all this stuff, uh, not a cheap trip, even compared to the expense of traditional American travel baseball fees. But the kids were just so, I think, moved by the experience, just seeing how, like I said, the way they live and yet still how hard they play and what good people they are. And uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. Yeah, and our players, Dan, really got a sense of what it was like to be on a college or a minor league baseball team with long bus rides and basically 18 hours a day of baseball talk. A lot of, a lot of baseball, yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was a good experience. So thank you out there for listening. We appreciate you being here on the Morning Brushback. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen. Obviously, we're here every Tuesday and Friday at 9 Eastern on Twitter and YouTube. So thanks again for being here. We will see you next week or on Friday on the morning brushback.